Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a beautiful piece by a, a composer who's very dear to me, Stephen Stuckey. Uh, Stephen Stuckey was a distinguished professor at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, for many, many years, probably more than three decades. Uh, and then uh, just a few years ago, moved to the Juilliard School, where he was a distinguished professor as well. Sadly, right in the middle of a year-long residency he was doing with us, he was diagnosed with brain cancer and passed away, sadly, in February 2016. It was a great loss to the music community, particularly to our, our world of American composers, because he was not only one of the, the most wonderful and, and creative American composers, but he was really much known and loved as a teacher and a, a, a great supporter of younger composers and, and really a, a great help to a number of young composers, many of whom studied with him, but many of whom did not study with him. He was always just uh, excited and delighted to mentor his young colleagues. He died at the age of 66, and during that year, we played two of his uh, remarkable orchestral compositions, uh, a work called Radical Light and a a gorgeous piece inspired by Rachel Carson's masterwork, uh, Silent Spring. We're in the process of completing a a disc or a a CD of uh, Stephen Stuckey's orchestral music. These three pieces that will be on the disc are all the the three remaining pieces of his that never had received commercial recordings. So we're very excited to be able to present that in his memory and in his honor. The work that you're about to hear, the Chamber Concerto, is uh, one of the works that will be appearing on that recording. This is a work that Stuckey wrote in 2009 uh, for the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. And I think the very generic sounding title tells you a lot about the piece. Uh, it's a concerto, uh, but it's a it's a concerto for orchestra, chamber concerto uh, for chamber orchestra, and uh, really a, a way to feature the magnificent solo instruments of that great chamber orchestra, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, and in this case, our great solo instrumentalists, the members of the Albany Symphony. Stuckey was particularly uh, known and, and actually revered as an orchestral colorist. As a young man, after his studies here in the U.S., he'd gone and spent some time in Poland uh, working with and actually studying very closely with the great Polish 20th century composer Witold Ludoslawski, one of the, the towering figures of, of 20th century, late 20th century music. Ludoslawski was a, 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 also a great colorist, uh, incredible ability to combine orchestral instruments in sounds to make sort of these wonderful uh, super orchestral sounds of, of combined oboes and flutes and violins and trumpets and such. And Stephen not only studied with him, but also actually wrote uh, the definitive work, uh, analytical work, uh, book on on Ludoslavsky's works, which even though I think he wrote it in the 60s, uh, is still kind of the, the go-to text for anyone who wants to understand more of Ludoslavsky's art. And so this experience really was the most formative experience in, in Stuckey's evolution as a, a creative artist. And his music is always sumptuously scored. And uh, there's this wonderful sense of, of continuity where the instruments trade off 
seemingly without our noticing when passages are passed from one instrument or one instrumental family to another. Uh, so there's this, this luminosity and richness to the music, which I think is, is very much evident in this work, even though it's a work for small orchestra. Usually chamber orchestra works sound like they're for small orchestra, but this work I think sounds like it's for big orchestra, even though it's written for, for small orchestra, which is part of the alchemy of, of Stuckey's gift. Uh, it's a 20-minute long piece. It's in five sections or movements, but they're played continuously with an introduction. So there's a, a sort of mysterious introduction which lays out these these perfect fifths, these intervals that will become the main material of the piece. Then there's a it's a very simple sort of fast section, slow, fast, slow, fast. So five different parts, two slow sections surrounded by three lively fast sections. And the material is all really drawn from this very brief and, and mysterious opening. So a beautiful effervescent kind of a piece somewhat abstract in, in form and, and in language, but uh, certainly always, as with all of Stuckey's music, very beautifully sonorous and just a pleasure to hear. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony. Our many virtuoso performers, particularly the wind players, given great opportunities to shine. Uh, it's the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller, in Stephen Stuckey's Chamber Concerto from 2009. This is the Albany Symphony on WMHT-FM. I'm David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening. The next work on our program is a work that I am just so excited about. Uh, this is the sixth in a series of commissions that we've given to the amazing American composer Michael Torkey, who's quite a ubiquitous figure uh, on the radio and, and in concert halls across the country. Uh, he's roughly my age, so I think of him as a young man. He's, he's in his late 50s, uh, but has been on the scene from the time of his early 20s when he burst on the, on the orchestral scene in particular with a, a group of magnificent orchestral works with lots of coloristic names, Ecstatic Orange, or the one that I commissioned with the New York Youth Symphony, Bright Blue Music, Ash, and various other pieces that had color titles, the yellow pages, uh, and became really sort of an, an enfant terrible in the composition world. His works were played not only all over the U.S., but also in, in England and abroad, uh, and he developed quite a, a, a major career as a very, very young man. I had noticed, because I've stayed close to him and continued to play his music as we've, we've both added years on to our lives, that uh, even though he has a great number of orchestral works and a great number of chamber music and, and solo works, that his, his uh, output was strangely almost devoid of concerto-type works. Instrumentalists generally love playing his music and love having pieces from him. But uh, except for a saxophone concerto that, that I recorded many, many years ago, uh, there really weren't any concertos. So I sort of made a, a conscious decision about five years ago to start commissioning every year or two a new concerto from him. So we started with a, a cello concerto, a piano concerto, both of which we recorded. We recorded on Albany Records a, a couple of years ago. And then I also commissioned a set of three lovely little chamber concertino, sort of Vivaldi concerto-sized pieces, 10 or 11 minute long pieces for oboe, clarinet, and bassoon. And uh, those will be appearing on a recording that will also include this work that receives its premiere on this concert, uh, a violin concerto, which is the sixth in the series of these concerti. This is a very singular and unique piece in Michael's oeuvre, as it is kind of in, in the general world. Uh, Michael had encountered a, a brilliant young concert violinist named Tessa Lark, 
who has performed a, a couple of times in solo recitals at the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall here in our region and has traveled the country. She's still in her late 20s, so still very much the beginning of her career. One of the things that's very unique about Tessa is that she was born and raised in Kentucky, and her father, uh, who's a, a research scientist in his f- spare time, is a very, very accomplished bluegrass banjo player and plays gigs constantly and and really raised Tessa to be steeped in bluegrass fiddle traditions. So while she went to the New England Conservatory and the Juilliard School and won major competitions as a concert violinist, she also has this other entire life as a, a fabulous performing bluegrass violinist. And Michael heard her, she, she invited him to write a solo piece for her, and he wrote a sort of bluegrass-tinged piece and was really captivated both by her and also by the world of uh, folk fiddle music, which he really hadn't known much about. So he made a, a rather deep study for someone who did know anything about it, of both bluegrass and then the antecedents of bluegrass, like Irish fiddling. And then he wrote this piece really uniquely and specifically for Tessa and her particular gifts. So what's quite extraordinary about it is that even though Michael doesn't purport to be a bluegrass composer or a bluegrass uh, expert, he's really ingested so much of this wonderful music, banjo music, fiddle music, etc., that what came out really has a unique bluegrass-infused sensibility, even though it's 100% Michael Torkey in his wonderfully rhythmic, crisp, brilliant uh, way of, of creating music. So it's kind of a, a, a bit of a hybrid of bluegrass and the usual Michael Torkey techniques, but it certainly doesn't sound in any way like a hybrid. It sounds like a really... A unified, beautiful, unique composition. It's a typical concerto form in three movements, a a fast, lively first movement, uh, a slow, introspective second movement, and a a really sort of barn, it's not really a barn-burning third movement, but it's a real deep bluegrass, country-fiddling kind of third movement. The first movement Michael describes as being inspired by banjo picking, by the very ornate and complicated picking that banjo players do, and, and Michael thought, well, Isn't there a way that one could actually give that to a violinist? So it's all these banjo picking techniques, but transformed into violin playing and not not simply pizzicato where she plucks the strings, but mainly not pizzicato, mainly with her bow. She does these wonderful, very short, jazzy, uh, interesting kinds of lines that are that are amplified and, and responded to in the orchestra. The second movement is an achingly beautiful homage to Irish music. As Michael pointed out, you know, a a lot of the way Adirondack and and Appalachian and bluegrass fiddling came to be was because Irish immigrants came and brought their fiddle traditions and those kind of fused with folk music here. Uh, So this is a real sort of set of three semi, you know, very much imagined, but sort of Irish-inspired reels that uh, keep evolving, and it has a, a beautiful Irish feel to it. And the last movement, as I said, is is a real kind of a, a fiddler hoedown kind of a piece, so a very thrilling thing. And we're just delighted to have been able to bring this piece in the world into the world. We recorded it the day after the concerts, and that recording should be out hopefully by the late spring. And I, I hope it will really travel widely, and already Tessa has six or seven uh, orchestral performances lined up next year of this piece. I think it's really going to go all around the world because it's just such a thrilling, exciting, singular piece. So here it is, the world premiere performance of Michael Torkey's new fiddle concerto, Sky, it's called, featuring the brilliant fiddler Tessa Lark with the Albany Symphony and me, David Allen Miller, conducting. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.
The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The final work on our program uh, is one of my all-time favorites, and I know it's a great audience favorite, uh, but what was so wonderful about having it on this concert is... In a certain way, this great work of Beethoven's, his Seventh Symphony, and Michael Torkey's Fiddle Concerto, right new, brand new, right out of the box, really talked to each other kind of across the centuries in that Michael, while he wouldn't set himself up to be compared in any way to Beethoven, uh, has a lot of Beethovenian sound world in, in, his, in his compositional toolbox. Like Beethoven, he's an exceedingly rhythmically driven composer, and he, uh, he certainly likes to take little modules, little ideas, little motives, and develop them in a kind of Beethovenian fashion. That is one of Beethoven's great genius aspects of the fact that he can take a little almost seemingly non-theme like or and turn it into a whole gigantic architectural masterwork. And Michael does something similar in his own very contemporary ways. So feeling these two works kind of conversing across the ages and across the intermission was a wonderful aspect of this concert. Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, you know, one of the, the monumental great greatest masterpieces of all times in the genre, was written really at the end of Beethoven's most fertile symphonic period. It was written kind of in 1811, 1812, premiered in 1813. And as you probably remember, you know, Beethoven's musical life is, is roughly divided by scholars into three periods. No particularly compelling reason why that's the case, but there is this kind of early, middle, late idea around Beethoven, the early period, his student years through kind of 1800, so the first 30 years of his life. The middle period is, in a certain way, the most interesting because 87% of his greatest works were probably written in this 10-year period from 1800 to 1810. Most of the symphonies, piano concertos, violin concerto, his opera Fidelio, so much of his greatest chamber music and piano music, all was written in this incredible fertile period of the first decade of the 19th century. In the teens, he sort of slowed down. It was only in the last seven or eight years of his life, in the 20s, uh, when he had that final incredible flowering, his, his final works, the works of immense and timeless genius, the Ninth Symphony, the Mises Solemnis, the late piano sonatas, and of course those absolutely inscrutable and beyond imagining last string quartets. So this is a piece that interestingly sits very much at the end of this middle period. It's uh, just as he was getting involved in a lot of personal challenges, adopting his nephew and court cases and uh, sort of feeling, I think, a little bit wrung out and not as productive as he had been in the first decade. But that hadn't happened yet uh, by 1811, 12. And he, he wrote this incredible piece that appears on a concert in, in 1813 alongside a kind of populist piece he had dashed off, which is called Wellington's Victory, uh, the Battle Symphony, the so-called Battle Symphony. And the, the funny thing about this concert is it's much written about out and it was much acclaimed, but it was much acclaimed principally because people went crazy for the Wellington's victory. And in fact, someone even, one of the critics of the day said, you know, this was a fine companion piece to Wellington's victory. And of course, thinking of the mighty Seventh Symphony as a companion piece is a little bit humorous to us with the hindsight of history. But this piece was also really enjoyed on that concert. And I think the audience really 
uh, loved it, and it, the, the program was repeated a number of times in the ensuing months. And uh, just for those of you who are really into historicity and being historically accurate, there's this tendency that's come up that I, I'm frankly you know, a little bit mortified by, which this, is this idea that we have to all sit silently through a symphony like the Seventh Symphony, Symphony of Beethoven, never applauding between movements, taking it as some great unified whole. Well, for those of you who, who incorrectly think that is in fact has any, any basis in history, I have to tell you that in all of these first four performances of the, the Beethoven Seventh Symphony in, in those years, 1813, 14, there are accounts that the second movement had to be encored in the body of the concert before the orchestra could go on to the next movement. Well, of course, how could that have happened if nobody was applauding? So, of course, what happened was at the end of the second movement, people thought it was so beautiful, they applauded madly, and then they repeated it, the orchestra repeated it, and, and the concert went on. So, so the historic antecedent is that people always applauded between movements if they liked them. If they didn't applaud, that was probably really a really bad sign for the composer <laughs> that they didn't like that movement. So feel free to applaud between movements whenever you, you love something. The second movement, the, the Allegretto, was so successful that it ended up being kind of a standalone. It's that famous kind of, I guess it's been referred to as a funeral march. I don't think it is a funeral march at all, but the bum, 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 ba-da-da, bum That movement became so popular that performers of the day, orchestras of the day, actually took to inserting that in place of the second movement of the eighth symphony in a totally different key, wrong key, etc., because they thought it was more, you know, exciting and satisfying than the eighth symphony. So another, another hit to what we think of as historic accuracy. I mean, people would have their ways in the the 18th and 19th century, all sorts of crazy ways with with our great masterworks. Nonetheless, uh, it is an absolutely singular and and magnificent second movement. Uh, And the whole piece is just a a remarkable achievement, really in the realm of sort of rhythmic vitality and uh, this whole Beethovenian idea of just the joy of, of creation and the joy of sound and the joy of life. It is, of course, in four movements. The first movement begins with a slow, very powerful introduction, the longest introduction thus far in Beethoven's works, and really the longest introduction in any symphonic work to that point, I'm pretty sure. And that's followed by this incredibly vital dancing vivace. That just really never lets you go. It's such an exciting first movement. Followed, as I said, by the uh, very powerful and beautiful Allegretto. Very strange marking for this movement. Um, Traditionally, this movement has been played just at a total fraction of the tempo that Beethoven indicates it at. Beethoven gave us metronome markings for all the movements of his symphony, so we have a pretty good idea of what tempo he had in mind, and I try to really observe those as best I can. But this movement became kind of slowed down and turned into an adagio, or when in fact it started as an andante, which means like a walking tempo, but he thought that wasn't quite moving enough, so he actually changed it to allegretto, which is kind of like um, uh, more of a, of, a, of a fast tempo, actually, in fact. And we take it accordingly, but it's it's a brilliant set of somewhat sort of like uh, variations on a subject that just keeps repeating and yet it's not it's not traditional variations it's more that there are ever more overlays of additional material over this great set of themes building you know to a wonderfully cumulative powerful kind of uh, in a in a in a very powerful way uh, and with a beautiful contrasting second idea this leads to the third movement which is a very lively funny scherzo with extreme dynamic shifts from forte to piano and back and forth and then finally the most crazy 
I think, the most crazy movement in all of Beethoven's symphonies, the last movement, has this absolutely incessant theme that will not leave us alone. This little rhythmic idea that just permeates the movement and drives you almost to distraction. Uh, but it does build the beauty of Beethoven's ability to use very kind of ur motifs, simple short motives that seem to have unlimited possibilities to them, is that he can build incredible structures from these little motives and can do amazing things with harmony and structure, given how basic the underlying materials are. So it's kind of a crazy, unrelenting, mad finale, but always brings the audience to its feet, and we love doing it, exhausting though it is. And so here it is now, the monumental, brilliant, beautiful Beethoven Symphony Number no. 7. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.